Welcome to Health Setterer's podcast. Teresa Brown is a nurse, author, mother, wife, and a patient of breast cancer. She writes about the intersectionality of all these identities in her recently published memoir titled Healing When a Nurse is a Patient. Registered nurse Diana Mason hosted Teresa Brown for a series of interviews detailing her life with cancer, her decision-making around her life-threatening diagnosis, and the failings and successes of the healthcare system. These interviews first aired on Health Cetera in the Catskills on WIOX Radio in October 2022. I'm really pleased to welcome to Health Cetera a nurse colleague Teresa Brown came to nursing as a second career. Her first was teaching English to undergraduate students after earning a PhD in in the field. She once told me I wanted to do something more meaningful in my life. Uh, And I'm sure part of it was uh, teaching English to undergrads who were not English majors is not all that much fun. Uh, She earned a baccalaureate degree in nursing and went into nursing. And it was really fertile territory for her to simultaneously develop Develop a writing career that brought her to the attention of the New York Times, where she continues to be a periodic contributor. And she contributes, she writes for a variety of uh, blogs and publications. She's also written two books about being a nurse, and um, her nursing work was in oncology and later hospice care. But in her newest book, her third book, she writes about how the tables were turned when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Her new book, Healing, When a Nurse is a Patient, is published by Algonquin Books and is really an interplay between her experiences as a nurse, a wife and a mother, and a patient with breast cancer. And I'm delighted to welcome Teresa Brown to Health Cetera in the Catskills. Teresa, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Diana. You are welcome. And and I, I wrote to Teresa, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, about how I, I feel like I could have hours worth of conversation with her about this book. One, it's very well written. It's very readable. Um, but we're going to have to limit ourselves today. So I'm going to focus on a few things. Um, Teresa, so just to encapsulate, you were diagnosed with a slow-growing breast cancer that was removed with a lumpectomy, and then you went for t- radiation therapy and tamoxifen, <laughs> and more recently a similar drug as tamoxifen for postmenopausal women. Could, could you talk, and this is a big question, could you talk about, in general, how your experience with being diagnosed with cancer differed from being a nurse caring for patients who were newly diagnosed with cancer? Yes. In that moment when I was diagnosed on ultrasound, which isn't 100%, and I needed to have a biopsy to confirm it, but the radiologist was pretty sure, and she was right, it turns out. So in that moment, I was mortally afraid, and I also realized that I had never fully grasped what my patients were going through emotionally. And I was taking care of patients with really bad leukemias. You know, they had essentially been told by someone, you have to go to the hospital right now, and you're going to be there for six weeks to two months. And if you don't do this, you will die. So they must have been off the charts terrified. And I felt pretty off the charts terrified. It was that revelation that led me, once I was done with treatment, to write the book because it seemed so important to say that because I saw myself as a good nurse, an empathic nurse, a caring nurse. I felt like I really saw my patients. When I became a patient, I understood that I really didn't. And give us a small example of what you experienced, let's say from a nurse, that in, the, in, in your previous life as an oncology nurse would have been something you might have done, but uh, as a patient, it wasn't enough. 
I had my biopsy and went to talk to the nurse who was running that part of the clinic about when I would get the results. And you would think that in this moment, the most important thing would be how early am I going to know, right? How, how early am I going to know, yes, I have cancer, no, I don't have cancer. Instead, and I think this was a Tuesday, I, I remain blurry about the dates, but instead of doing that, she told me that I was not likely to get the results until the next Monday. And I just could not accept that. <laughs> that just seemed way too long. And I, I, long story, called the complaint line, reached out to my primary care provider, who even though I was told the results probably wouldn't be available for almost a week, found out the results the next day and called and told me. I think as a nurse, I might have been in a situation like that with a patient, and I think I would have been kinder about saying all of that mm -hmm. than this particular nurse was, yeah. but I still might have felt like, I can't do anything about this. This is the system. I don't make the rules. I can't give you results I don't have. Doctors give me the results on their own schedule. I'm really sorry. I feel for you. Done. Patient goes home. As a patient, <laughs> uh, you know, this is more than, well, we can't change the schedule. You know, this is not like waiting for your Peloton bike to show up, right, or the bestseller you ordered from Amazon. This is your life. My life. Yeah. And, and that sense of, okay, this is a glitch. Wish I could change it. Can't. Do feel bad about it that I had as a nurse. In so many situations, as a patient, I, I learned, no, 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 we, we have to do better. This is terrible. And, Teresa Brown, one of the things that comes out in the book is how problematic our healthcare system is. And you've, you knew that as a nurse, but it, it really brought it home in a real way when you were a patient. Um, and, and you talk repeatedly about how it's such a profit-oriented, bottom-line, financially-oriented system that we have forgotten that there is a person here, there is a human here. And um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't feel a lot of hope that that is going to change anytime soon. However... The other thing I think you bring out is that sometimes it's the little moments of compassion that make the difference. It can be the small things that matter. Talk a little bit about that. How does that play out within this, just uh, as we know, it's a non-system uh, that's very complex and very dehumanizing. That's a great question, and I love talking about this. So where I got radiation oncology was so adept at the little things. It was far and away not just the best experience I had during my treatment, but a categorically different experience. So before the treatment started, I had an appointment with the doctor where she explained the timing, what was going to happen, very important not to miss visits. A nurse talked to me about taking care of my skin. And this is just a very small thing, but usually they give patients a big jar of aloe vera gel to protect their skin. And I'm allergic to aloe vera gel. So she said, oh, you can get Aquaphor from the drugstore. But she, she seemed almost devastated that she herself could not give me any Aquaphor, which is cheap and readily available, right? This is not a hard thing to get a hold of, but... That impressed me so much, just the, the kindness in that. And everything at Radonk was like that. They had a coring machine, and it was the middle of winter, and so that was lovely. They let me sit out in the hallway to wait instead of in the waiting room because the TV played game shows, and I don't know why, but it made me anxious. <laughs> just I could give a whole list of things. So all those little things, and what they added up to was a 
feeling that I was being cared for, a feeling of we can hold this for you. We can make you feel like a person. We can see you as a whole being here. And none of that's expensive. But I got the feeling that someone in leadership, and maybe it was that doctor who spoke with me, but someone had worked hard to create that environment because radiation oncology was in the basement of the same hospital where I had the biopsy and the nurse didn't seem to understand why I want my results sooner than almost a week later. And the question I ask in the book is, if they can do this in radiation oncology, why can't they do it everywhere else? Yeah. And I think you're bringing out this intentionality that there's an intentionality that we're going to, I think what you just said, hold, we're going to hold this for you. We're, going, we're there for you. And, and system be damned, we're going to be there for you. And, and if you don't have that intentionality and if you don't talk about the ways that that intentionality is shown, it, it's, it, it just, it's happenstance. And it's not what you experience it at Radonc, the Radiation Oncology uh, Unit. Um, so, so there is hope there, uh, and I think it really does lie within one leaders uh, and at a local level, leaders at a local level, mm-hmm. whether a department or a small hospital. Those leaders saying mm-hmm. this really matters, um, and creating the conditions where the employees also feel like they're cared for, right? Exactly, and that is so much what we saw during COVID. Yeah. Nurses, doctors, everyone working in hospitals feeling uncared for and initially being called heroes and then then it's really almost like the tide turned and people got really angry at people who work in healthcare. It's it's so hard. I I think people don't understand how demanding it is to do that job of dealing with very fragile people and you're doing everything you can keep them alive, you know, especially if we're talking about COVID patients, and you're being told you have to constantly put information into a computer, and you're supposed to be focused on this horrible word, throughput, you know, which is about how quickly does someone get in and get out. And there's so little time, right, to see patients as people, but also to see staff as people. And and what we saw during COVID was people break. They can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're, they're trying their hardest, and they just can't yeah. sustain that level of, of demand. And I don't know if people know this, but the suicide rate for physicians is much, much higher than the general population. Yeah. The death by suicide rate for nurses who are women is also much higher than the general population. You know, these are not people who can't handle having a bad day. This is, as as some people have said, a healthcare system actually imploding because we have asked too much of the people in it and given them too little support. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere, including yes. in this lo- local community, that uh, people were having trouble getting people to work because they've decided this is not worth it. Uh, so I want to oh. shift gears a little bit and, and say, first of all, I was really glad you brought in Susan Sontag's book, Illness as Metaphor. Uh, that book has really shaped how I think not just about cancer but about other illnesses. And for those listeners who may not know the book, um, talk about, uh, briefly, why it's so important to your book. Yeah, it's, I'm so glad to hear you say it's, it's been so important to you because it's, it's almost like sort of one of my Bibles of practice, yeah. you know? Um, but when, when Sontag was diagnosed with breast cancer herself, she says this in the book, she didn't want to write a book about her story. She wanted to write something that would be useful. So for her, that was applying her tremendous intellect to how cancer gets talked about. And two big things. One, at that time, there was this very prominent notion of a quote-unquote cancer personality. 
which was someone who repressed all their anger, and that's how you got cancer. And I've read that her book was very instrumental in getting rid of that profile of cancer patients, which is is horrible and, and blaming of the victim. The other big issue she takes on is all the war metaphors that we use to talk about cancer. And I found her quite profound talking about that. And then I bring that up and echo that and say, it's, it's just so misplaced to use this metaphor because cancer is, it's not an invader. It's not a disease that comes from the outside like COVID or the flu. It's our own genetics going wrong. A cell that should have died doesn't. And not only does it not die when it should have, it just keeps repeating, re- reproducing and reproducing and reproducing and reproducing. That's cancer starts as one of our own cells and it just doesn't break when it's supposed to and there are various theories about why that happens including environmental ones yes (laughs) yes right yes yes (laughs) yes triggers and right and we've seen with smoking that's the most obvious example is a a known carcinogen Um, and that's how many people but not all who have lung cancer get lung cancer um, so, yeah, I, once I became a cancer patient, it seemed even more horrible, this idea that so suddenly my body is a battleground and there's fighting going on. It's like an army inside me, yeah. you know, yeah. fighting against my own cells. And it just, it, it doesn't fit and it, it doesn't work. So I, I, I want to I explore this a bit more. So uh, the big C, talking about cancer, is, you know, when somebody hears I have cancer, you immediately think I'm going to die. Despite mm-hmm. some in healthcare calling for a shift in this thinking, because in many cases we can treat cancers as a chronic illness. We don't say that Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, um, it, it is as soon as you hear that diagnosis, you're going to die. We don't have the same attachment to it, even though it is such a progressive and debilitating illness that it's one I would never want to have. I'd rather have cancer first. I mean, I think I think Stephen Hawking is the only case I know of that um, where it did become a chronic illness. So mm-hmm. and and I so you you are an expert in language, and I I I, I want to tie this in with. I, I want I want to talk about your your thoughts about how we think about react to and talk about cancer, but I want to also contextualize this with um, a the president of the American Cancer Society years ago was a man who I'm sorry it wasn't cancer it was diabetes. American Diabetes Association said that he had cancer and he had diabetes. He never got the same sympathy with, with his diabetes diagnosis that he got when he told mm. people he had cancer. So, so back to metaphor, yeah, illness is metaphor and this languaging of things, um, yeah, including the word survivor. I mean, talk about what you think about how we speak about and how we respond to uh, even uh, somebody telling us, I have cancer. That's a great question. And, and for people, if you go to Sontag's book, she, she puts the whole cancer discussion in the context of how people used to talk about tuberculosis, yes. that it was people who were artistic who got tuberculosis. So just just to say that there are some diseases that get this abundance of labels, you are exactly right that cancer is the only disease we talk about this way. And it, it seems like a version of dealing with people's fear, maybe denial, but, but all that cancer is a journey. And people ask me that since the book came out, you know, where are you on your cancer journey? And I know they mean that really well, but I just, I just always want to say, you know, no one goes on a journey with cancer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That is not what I want. Yeah. I am going to Paris and I'm bringing cancer yes. with me. Yes. You know? yes. um, so yeah, the journey, the war metaphors, that cancer is a gift, even people say. Um, and, yeah, this pressure to uh, 
proudly say, well, I'm a cancer survivor. And I, I don't, I don't feel that partly because I'm still seeing my doctor and still being treated and I'm going to have mammograms for the rest of my life. And every single time I'm going to be anxious and yet we're, we're supposed to, you know, box it up as a journey and a gift and uh, then say that we're a survivor. I feel like that puts so much pressure on cancer patients and there's no other disease that that happens to. But it's also what you were saying, the guy said, oh, I don't get empathy for my diabetes the same way I did for cancer. So I think it, it just evokes a huge amount of fear and I've sort of joked about the book, like, spoiler alert, I live. Um, <laughs> you know? Right, right. But, but maybe that's part of the message of the book is, hey, people can get cancer and they can be terrified and they can go through treatment and then they're, you know, they're pretty much okay. Yeah. To me, the other thing is, so I have a friend who has just been told she has some cardiac problems. And um, she's quite anxious, understandably so. And yet the response that probably I give to her as well as others give to her is different than if she was telling me she had cancer. And and I think it, it gives me pause personally to think about how do I respond to people regardless of what that diagnosis is. And what support do people need through any illness illness experience? Um, so I, I I really appreciated your your raising the the these issues in the book as well as pointing out that one person's response to cancer is one person's response to cancer. You do not. In fact, I listened to the um, interview on NPR that NPR just did with you, and you mm. were very clear that um, you you don't you don't look for other people with cancer to respond the way you do or think the way you do about it. And I think that's also really important to point out. And I appreciated um, that perspective. Oh, thanks. Um, Yeah. About the heart disease thing. It just quickly, my husband had a really bad heart attack about a year and a half ago and he got immediate treatment without treatment. He no hands down. He would have died. Right, because of where the blockage was, and now he's fine. Medical miracle. But the point is, he he really was so close to death in a way that objectively I was not with my cancer, and yet I, I hear exactly what you're saying about the reaction to them is so different. The feelings attached to them are so different. Yeah. Yeah. So look, we only have a few minutes left. Um, there's so much more that I had on my list to talk with you about, but maybe another time. But I wanted to end with you uh, reflecting on what are the lessons that you would like to share with the general public about this this idea of of healing and about being a patient within this healthcare system with a serious diagnosis. Yeah, I would say feel entitled to speak up when you have questions, to understand what's happening you to you, to try and push the system when you're told you're going to have to wait a time that seems unreasonable to you. I really am wishing for a kind of bottom-up revolution. If If so many patients are saying, wait, slow down, I don't understand, is it possible you could compel the healthcare system to be more reactive, to actually sit down and pay attention. You know, right now it kind of depends on all of us being go-along-to-get-along people, and that really doesn't work when you're scared to death. So I, I want to encourage people, make sure you understand what's going on. Make people explain things to you. That is your right. It's a totally appropriate adult request, and you need that. And, and can I just interject? My experience has been that when things do not go well, mm-hmm. a reasoned letter does get read and most times will matter. Mm. Yes. And if you can, when you complain, uh, which I also support doing, 
but try to put it in terms of the system. Yeah. My nurse just seemed like she had way too many patients. Mm-hmm. Um, my doctor felt this time pressure to get out of the office, yeah. Yeah. you know, in, instead of personally blaming someone, if yeah. you can. Yeah. Um, any other lessons? There's a whole lot in the book. <laughs> right. Um, you know, have, have people help you. I'm not someone who's very good at letting people do things for me, but so many people did all kinds of, you know, small gestures, little things, right? And together they added up to a kind of tapestry of caring that I felt, which was wonderful. So if people want to do something nice for you, let them. Yes. Well, uh, Teresa, Brown, I, w- I want to say that you've also got lessons here about how to select a physician. And it depends upon whether you want this. Uh, it, 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 you're selecting a surgeon, a medical oncologist, or someone else. Yes. Yes, yes. So, so lots of lessons in here. And one of these days I want to talk about the bike trip, uh, but perhaps not on, on this occasion. Uh, but it's, it's a very, very interesting read. Um, and I, I appreciate uh, what it took to write it. In fact, um, I imagine that there were a lot of feelings when you wrote it, uh, and uh, that would also be interesting to hear from you about. But for now, I want to encourage readers to look at this book, Healing, When a Nurse Becomes a Patient, by my guest, Teresa Brown. Teresa Brown is a nurse, an author, uh, yeah, and a New York Times contributor and many other things, and a wife and mother, and I appreciated your bringing your family into the book as well, Teresa. I thank you, Teresa Brown, for coming back on to Health Cetera in the Catskills. Well, it's my pleasure. And everyone should know that Diana is one of my nursing heroes. <laughs> and uh, so it's, uh, it's just really great to be back. So I, Teresa's on my payroll, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a mutual admiration society. So uh, Teresa writes beautifully, and I, I do um, encourage you to look at TeresaBrown.com, right? Oh, TeresaBrownRN.com. RN.com. And uh, you can see her writings and, and get this book. It's a really good book. So Teresa, for those listeners who didn't hear the first interview, Give them the cliff notes of your experience here. Yes. So I was diagnosed with breast cancer in fall of 2017, coming up on the magic five-year mark, which feels great. Um, And uh, it was a a stage one cancer and I slow growing small. And I say all that to say it was very treatable, but terrifying, even though I'd worked with a lot of oncology patients, I had not understood that when you hear cancer and it's your cancer, you think you're going to die. And I was really surprised continually at how little coordinated care there was, at how little thought there was, how little compassion there was. And I realized wow, I've been part of this system too, as a nurse. And I I knew there were glitches, but I thought, well, we all care so much. We work so hard. We make it okay. But as a patient, I thought, no, we didn't, you know, things that as a nurse, I could say, well, yeah, there was that problem, but you know, everything worked out in the end as a, as a patient, those moments where trust was lost were so painful and so stark and so meaningful in a negative way. And that's what got me to write the book. And the book alternates between what I'm going through with treatment and um, diagnosis, and also looking back on my work as a nurse and then things with family, which are all part of the recovery. Um, and it's it's really like, a, it's kind of a, a a template of just my mind, what was going on, thinking about what I was going through, what I had seen as a nurse, what I had done as a nurse, what I had not done as a nurse, and then as a person trying to make sense of all that. Yeah, and and there are a lot of lessons in the book that we talked about in the first interview, um, and we focused a lot about um, Susan Sontag's book, Illness as Metaphor, uh, and, and the idea that we conflate cancer and death because of course, years ago, if you got a diagnosis of cancer, it was a diagnosis of death. 
Uh, but, but there's been a lot of advances in cancer care, as you know, having served as an oncology nurse. And certainly none of us want it, but many cancers now being able to be, be treated and are considered, even if you're not cured of it, um, are considered chronic illnesses. So we talked about that, but one of the things that we didn't talk so much about that I'd really like to focus on is telling someone that you have cancer evokes uh, a, a, a interesting responses from people. And I'm interested in one, when and how you decided who to tell that you had cancer, because that, that's clear from the book. It was not always easy to tell someone like your family. Um, but also I, I wanna hear about your, how people responded and, and what, what, what advice you have for people of when somebody tells you I have cancer or any serious illness, what's the best way to think about responding to them? So maybe start with, how did you decide who to tell and when to tell them and how to tell them? Yeah, I, I told my mother first and I talk about this in healing. And then she asked if she should tell my brother. And I said, yes, I just, I found it so hard to tell people. And then my parents are divorced and I was so exhausted from that. I, I couldn't tell, call my dad that day. So I called him the next day. Um, I had a friend who was diagnosed about six months before I was, and I told her and, uh, you know, she said something like, yeah, the, this is a, you know, a level of friendship you didn't really have to go to. I mean, you know, kidding, but, um, so the truth is I ended up writing about my diagnosis in the New York times. And in part it, it was because that was an easy way of telling a whole lot of people and people laugh when I say that, but it's true. I mean, I also wanted, it was October. I don't like the pink. I hate how pink is everywhere in October. I had things to say about that, but it also was an easy way for me to tell a lot of people. And, you know, not everybody can put their diagnosis in a national right, newspaper, right, right. Um, but uh, that's, that's how difficult I found it. And I, I think my husband, like he told his parents, he made some of the phone calls for me. Um, I just, I found it really hard. And now I'm wondering, based on your question, if part of that was because of responses from other people. And the, the great thing was when I put it in the New York Times, so many people wrote to me, people who read my column and, hey, Teresa, I am a breast cancer survivor of 20 years, you know, hey, I had two mastectomies, I'm still here. You know, it was really wonderful just to get this kind of chorus of stories from women saying, you're gonna be okay, kiddo. Um, and that was great. But the, the thing I didn't want was sort of having to deal with other people's anxiety about, oh, cancer. Wow. That, that makes me really anxious. Sorry. I'm trying, I forgot to silence my phone. Let me do that. Um, and uh, this was really brought home to me when my husband uh, during the pandemic had a really serious heart attack. And every person I told said, what? He's so healthy. He's so young. He rides his bike all the time. You guys eat so well. And so I had to manage their anxiety about that. And well, it's genetics. And, and I really just wanted them to say, oh my God, so that's so scary. I'm so sorry. Um, and so I think the best thing people can do is yeah, if you hear someone had a serious heart attack and they almost died, that they have cancer, whatever, that tends to make people anxious. But you cannot <laughs> express that anxiety to the person who's got the illness or dealing with the loved one with the disease. Uh, you, you've got to keep that to yourself. And, and I think really the best thing people can do is listen and I, Diane, I can't remember if you and I talked about this last time. I think we did, but that 
through all this and talking about healing, someone told me when they were diagnosed with cancer, all they wanted people to say to them was, you're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And that was the thing I didn't want anyone to say to me in that tone of voice, right? Like I wished my doctors had sat down with me and said, we can treat this. We really think this is going to be okay. And no one did. Um, But everybody wants different things. You know, some people are angry. Some people are sad. Some people are just like, I'm just going to keep going and living my life. And, you know, I'm not going to be afraid until I have a reason to be afraid. And so meeting people where they are, rather than trying to pull them into where you think you would be, is the ideal, which is not easy. I I admit that it's not easy, but listening is the most important part of that. I I always try to, one, be empathic. So I, I think it is difficult for people to know, how do I respond to somebody telling me somebody's died or somebody's got a serious illness or bad news? And I, I think it's, I'm so sorry for you, but um, how are you feeling about this? Tell, tell me about how you're feeling about it. And to do that listening and to then ask, how can I be supportive? That perfect, perfect. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> And, and, and if I had asked you, how can I be supportive? What would you have said? I think I would have said, hey, just occasionally send me an email saying, hey, I'm thinking of you. I hope you're all right. Um, I think, you, you know, Danielle O'Free, who's yeah. a doctor in New York, who's yeah. also written for the New York Times. I mean, she at one point emailed me and, and said, hey, I'm just thinking about you, wondering how you are. Don't feel you don't write back. And that was so lovely. Like, I'm just giving to you. I don't expect anything in return. In fact, I'm telling you, don't even be thinking about giving me anything in return. Yeah. Yeah. I've also had people say to me, don't ask me how I'm doing. Ask me how I'm doing today. Because if you ask me how I'm doing, it's too big of a question, which I have found interesting. And I actually use with a friend who has a chronic illness. I never ask her, how are you doing? I say, how are you doing today? Or how have you done this week? Um, And it was, it's been interesting to see the response to that. And I I don't know if you have any experience with that sort of, well, how are you doing, Teresa? Yeah. People who see you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that, that reminds me of, um, I, I quote from an Audre Lorde poem, in healing, which if people don't know her, she was just an amazing black woman, lesbian activist on all those fronts, uh, feminist. And uh, she was uh, dying. She had breast cancer and then ended up dying of liver cancer. And the poem I quote from is her saying, today is not the day. It could be, but it isn't. Today is today. And that's so, in fact, I'm, I'm getting chills. It's so powerful. I, I really love that. It, it's sort of giving someone their day, right? Um, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, and I, I definitely, I, I know people mean well when they say, how are you doing? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I did get tired of that. Yeah, yeah. It actually, I think, can become a burden when you're asked too often. Um, So, Teresa, um, one really important aspect of the book um, that I found, and I'm talking with Teresa Brown, who is a nurse who is diagnosed with breast cancer and has the book, uh, wrote a book, Healing, uh, when uh, the nurse is a patient. And uh, we're talking about that book and her experiences that she writes about. And one of the things that stood out to me throughout the book was the idea of decision-making around a serious illness like cancer. So how, do, how you select a physician or hospital or treatment, or even decide whether to get a certain test or not. Um, and and you, you, in your critique of the healthcare system, you rightly bring out that this is a health system, healthcare system that is so organized around profits that it gets in the way of compassion and caring. So there's a whole trust issue here. And, and so I'd like you to talk a little bit about first your, your thoughts about selecting a physician, because you actually use different standards for different physicians. And I, I want 
I want you to talk about that because I thought it was very well thought out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I so I saw two different surgeons, one of whom I had known through my work taking care of oncology patients. Very nice guy, great guy. Um, then I went to see the other surgeon who my good friend, who's a breast surgeon, recommended and said he's quirky, but brilliant. And he <laughs> definitely was strange, <laughs> strange, did explain things very thoroughly in his own kind of strange way. Um, but I felt like the edge of a very sharp intellect there. And I wanted my surgeon's mind to be as sharp as his scalpel. And after my surgery, everyone, oh, you had Dr. X. He's the best, like without fail. That is what people say. But reflecting on it, I realized I, re I really kind of wanted that nice guy surgeon after it was all done. Right. And I have not resolved that conundrum for myself because a doctor, a friend of mine said, Teresa, why do you go to a surgeon? And I said, surgery. <laughs> he said, yep, that's right. <laughs> so it's a true statement to say this doctor does his best work when people are unconscious. It's his most important work, right? That's the most important work is to get that tumor out of my body. And yet he was a strange guy, not that comforting, definitely quirky. I don't know how that can be resolved mm -hmm. um, because I, I wanna give credit to him for his, his skill. Um, it is interesting. One of these talks I gave a, a palliative care doctor I used to work with said, it's really, he said, I'm gonna put you on the hot seat a little bit, Teresa. He said, people have these same biases that you have, that like I want a surgeon who's super sharp, but actually data shows that's not a real correlation. It's a bias that people have and that kindness in physicians and you know intellectual acuteness and those things are not mutually exclusive. Mm. And I, I would never have acknowledged that I felt that way until he pointed it out to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, I said, oh, wow, I, I now need to release a new edition with a footnote that says, thank you, Patrick White, for pointing out this incredible yeah. mistake I made. Yeah. Well, well, look. <laughs> not mistake, it, not mistake, but, yeah. you know, applying standards that. Yeah. Well, it wasn't heart surgery or brain surgery. It was a lumpectomy, right? Right. right. And so I, I would argue that there are some surgeries where I would have taken the quirky guy and the sharp scalpel and, and, and the, just the brilliance about that cutting. On the other hand, I think you're right. I, I mean, it's you do the surgery, but we all know that there are problems and complications that can occur afterward. And who are you dealing with? Are you dealing with somebody who really cares? And you made different decisions around your oncologist and I think your radiologist, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and then the radiologist was frank, very forthcoming, very clear in, in radiation oncology and in, in the book is just a model of what cancer care could be and it's not complicated. That's what I really like to stress. They were just, they were very clear. They had me watch a video. They said, here's the schedule. Here's what matters. Here's how you take care of your skin. They were unfailingly friendly uh, and not in a, in a phony forced way, but in a way that felt very genuine. And I felt all that comes from leadership. There was something about that department. Um, and then the medical oncologist I picked, I knew her from when I worked in the hospital and I had seen her in situations where people were not being told honestly what was going on with them, that they were not doing well and they weren't being told that by the medical team. And mm. she tended to be much more honest mm. and forthright. And that made me really like her. 
Um, but uh, this isn't in the books that happened after I finished the book, but the, developed a whole issue with being on tamoxifen. And I ended up switching medical oncologists because I, she wasn't listening to what I was saying about tamoxifen and quality of life and found a new doctor who the team works with me. And yeah, um, yeah so it's hard. Isn't yeah, it? It, it is hard. It's very hard. And the radiologist who found my lump, she recommended a woman surgeon at McGee who's, who's pretty new. And my primary care provider said, you know, there are two new women there and I've had patients where they come back, they don't have clean margins. They have to have another mm -hmm. surgery. You know, that was scary to mm -hmm. me. And you know, who knows, maybe that just happened to be three of his patients and it's never happened any other time, but that's the thing. I wasn't getting any help from the system. And it was just like, well, here are all these names. Yeah. And that's not helpful at all. I don't think. Right. Right. And no sense of, uh, of coordination. I mean, I, I know people who've in the New York area or New Jersey, who've been diagnosed and they kind of feel like what's going on. And then they go to Sloan Kettering and suddenly it's like, wow, you know, they, they feel like there's a program they're being held by the system. It's, it's such a different experience. And I, I never got that feeling except for in radiation oncology of, yeah, we're going to help you with this. And, and, and we're going to guarantee sort of a level of quality across the board. So you don't have to guess. Yes. So it really is a place that has a reputation of being a team of people who coordinate care, where the experience is consistently compassionate, paying attention and follow through. Uh, and, and that's, I think, by asking around, uh, asking as you did, um, your primary care provider, although I find that many times they will not be honest, you were a nurse, you know, they were going to be a little bit more honest with you, perhaps but uh, often they'll give you just the three names. So it, it, is, it is a difficult decision point. So the other, one of the other issues is about decisions has to do with tests. And we are a country that likes to test. And <laughs> Rosemary Gibson has written a book on over test screening and over treating and how it can get you on that train that never stops through the healthcare system. It's really hard to get off the train because then you find this little thing and everybody wants to do this to you. They find something else everybody wants. So, so I, I, I try to differentiate with people. There is screening and then there is diagnostic testing. Screening is mass looking, you know, do you have the risk factors? We're going to do mammographies on everyone, although I have some issues with that. Uh, but, um, but then there are diagnostic mammographies. So one of the, one of the things that I was taking about that I knew nothing about was the test around whether you should proceed with chemotherapy or not. And there were two different options, one of which was much more costly. So talk, talk about that testing option. Yeah, so just to give people background, you know, a decade or two decades ago, probably depends on where you are, every woman in my position would have had chemotherapy. And then they realized not, it doesn't give benefit to a certain percentage of women with a certain diagnosis, so, which is great, right? Um, but so there's this very expensive test called Oncotype DX that they, they look at the tissue sample and plug a bunch of stuff in and do a genetic test. And it takes a couple of weeks. And then they tell you whether you'd benefit from chemo or not. But there's also an algorithm, which if people don't know what that means, it basically means, let's just say a formula, right? It's like a formula for a, a mathematical formula for determining whether someone would benefit from chemotherapy or not. And these algorithms were actually developed here in Pittsburgh and you can find them online. They're called the McGee equations, M-A-G-E-E, -E, because they were developed at McGee Hospital. So I, I put my information into the McGee equations and no, you won't benefit from chemotherapy, but my effort 
to try and get a doctor to just quickly talk with me about that was incredibly frustrating. Um, and, and finally I, I pulled a string, although the doctor said, you know, I, I didn't need to do that. She was going to meet with you anyway. Um, and we saw her and she put the equations into the McGee equations and got the same result I did when I did it online. Not that I'm recommending people who don't know anything about healthcare do that. You know, this, I'm not giving you medical advice, but, um, it, it was amazing to me. And then I felt like, I, I don't understand this. Like why, why don't they just do that right away when the pathology report comes? Why doesn't it just get done for everyone or, why don't they automatically do Oncotype DX if that's the gold standard? But then you get into, I looked up some, you know, peer reviewed journals on all this stuff and you have to read the fine print, but a couple of the papers promoting the test were written by people who developed the test. I mean, this, and you know about this, Diana, huge conflict of interest in a lot of the medical papers that get published where people are actually writing positively about things that they're making money from. You have to know how to find that information in the paper. You know, I feel like it should be like a, in a bar, you know, Um, but it, but it isn't. Um, So just that I talk about rabbit holes and healing, just that rabbit hole is, you know, kind of, overwhelming and, and unbelievable. Um, and in the end, I, I did not need chemotherapy, but, uh, one doctor, you know, we spoke with, you know, this, I mean, I, she didn't speak with me, her nurse did, you know, this is a complicated decision and like, yeah, well, no, not really. Yeah. Yeah. For some of us. Yeah. Yeah. So the other issue is treatment. And when there are a variety of treatment options, um, I, I, so this is, this is a little bit more challenging to ask. So you decided to um, go with tamoxifen. So tell, tell people what tamoxifen, why, why you did tamoxifen and what tamoxifen does. Yeah, tamoxifen binds to estrogen in the body. So my tumor was, it's like estrogen, the hormone was its food and tamoxifen basically comes in and connects to it in such a way that it, you know, can't feed the tumor. Right. And it's given to women who are diagnosed before menopause, when you have a lot more circulating estrogen and it, where it comes from is different than after menopause. So it's kind of standard women go on tamoxifen for five years because that's basically how long the research is for. Um, And they found it reduces your risk of a recurrence. You know, how much is, it sounds like a lot, like it'll say, you know, 50% or, but that's, you know, your risk is already so low. It's like reducing your, I'm not going to get the numbers in my head. You said 10%. Recurrence to 7%. Yeah, right, right, right. So you'll, you'll get this big sounding number, but then when you're actually looking, that's the thing about percentages and risks that risks. people need to understand. Like absolute ab- versus relative risk. Yes, absolute, yeah. yes, thank you very much. Ask yeah. your physician, what's the absolute risk yes. reduction, not the relative risk reduction, you know, yeah. physician or NP or PA. Um, right, so that's the plan five years. And, you know, again, me being a nurse, you know, I've given people chemotherapy that has hurt them. (laughs) So I, you know, probably internalize this sense of it's very important to follow the rules and and do what they tell you. Um, And, and tamoxifen was just terrible for me. I, I couldn't think when I first started it, I was tired all the time. Uh, and it got better slowly, but it, it, it changed, it changed who I was. Um, you know, I just, I lost a lot of mental sharpness, um, made everything harder and this fatigue that would come and go. And I never expected, I never could expect when it was going to come. 
I never knew what would make it better, what would make it worse. Um, it was, it was really terrible. Yeah. Um, and, and I started to look into it for healing and learned that 50% of women do not take tamoxifen for the five years oh. <clears throat> they're supposed to, which is, I mean, that, you know, this is, that's a high number. Yeah. No one ever told me that. No talking about if it doesn't work for you, what could we do? Mm. And um, so, I mean, there's a real quality of life issue here. And I think my question as I was reading it was, wait a minute, if you're going reducing your risk by three percentage points and the trade-off is brain fog, profound fatigue that really interferes with your enjoyment of life and your ability to function the way you want to function. You know, this whole idea of risk evaluation, how do we evaluate treatment decisions? And, you know, you, you think about the idea of a cancer recurring, you don't even want that 3% chance, right? But when you figure quality of life, who's talking about the trade-offs? Does anybody talk about trade-offs? And it sounds to me like nobody did have a discussion with you about, so here's, here's what's, what's going to happen to your risk of recurrence. Here are the symptoms that really may affect the quality of your life. And it's your decision about whether that quality of life decrement in the quality of life is worth that little bit lowering, lowering of the risk of recurrence. Yeah, that's right. Nobody talked about that at all. And the new oncologist I'm seeing, he said, Teresa, if you were being seen through the National Health Service in England, they wouldn't even have put you on tamoxifen. Wow. Because for them, in terms of risk benefit, it's not worth it. Yeah. Um, and of course, even he, he told me that, but at the same time, wanted me to be on something because, <laughs> because of course, you know, we're Americans, right? right. So you have right. to be extreme about everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but they they accepted, I tried a low dose of tamoxifen. I had the same symptoms and they accepted that I'm, I'm not going to be on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They're just very difficult decisions. And I feel like they're, the healthcare system is not very good at helping people to evaluate those decisions. They're not presenting us with all of the information, all of the options. And, you know, here's what you want to weigh quality of life versus a 3% risk in, in the cancer recurring. So, um, and, and it's acknowledging that we all have different values and priorities. And so we won't make the same decisions, but um, it's, it's the healthcare system wants to make the decision for you, it seems to me. They're too eager to do the treatment that they want to do and convince you that that's the treatment you should have. So I, uh, it, it makes it difficult to um, sometimes feel like you you're making the right, what is the right decision and what's the right decision for you? Right. And there's a paternalism mm-hmm. built into that because when I said I wouldn't go back on tamoxifen again, after three and a half years, she, one of the options she said was, well, we could remove your ovaries. <gasps> she said, you know, it's just one day <gasps> surgery. <gasps> Oh my gosh. Yeah. Just like it's getting a hangnail taken oh care of, you know? Um, and you know, the thing is if they had told, if they had brought that up when I started tamoxifen and, and starting tamoxifen was really like hell. I described this in healing. I had the worst, the most painful, awful, scary headache I've ever had in my life. Um, just extreme nausea. I mean, it was, you know, it was terrible. You know, if they had said, let's try it for a month. And if it's really bad, you know, maybe we can talk about taking out your ovaries. And I, if they had brought it up then I might've said, okay, but it's like, after I went through three and a half years of this hell, no, no, I'm not doing that. No, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Teresa, I, I also want to talk with you about you are an avid bicycler and you write in the book, 
about how something that was just sort of made me just like, oh, she must be nuts, bicycling to your treatments every day, but you're an avid bicycler. So, so clearly that was therapeutic for you and, and the sense of that I'm, I'm still in charge of my life. You, you, towards the end of the book, you write about a bike trip with your family. And I, I wanna talk about that bike trip because the conclusion was not what you ended up the chapter with was not quite what I was expecting. Give, give the cliff notes on the bike trip. It was quite an interesting trip. Yeah. So there's a bike trail that goes from Pittsburgh to Washington, DC. And we had done part of it when our kids were young and decided we really want to do the whole thing. And our son who actually does not like biking well, really at all, <laughs> I was going to say compared to the rest of us, but just doesn't like it. Had agreed to be this sort of supply person who would follow us in a car and meet us for lunch. And um, so uh, that was great. But then it was, I don't know. The third, anyway, we're in Cumberland, Maryland. It was raining, 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 raining. We head out. Conrad, had our son, had actually gone back to Pittsburgh. Friend was having a graduation party. And then he was going to come back and meet us at the next stop raining, 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 keeps raining, keeps raining. We're on the bike path, which is slowly turning into mud that we can't navigate. The water in the um, canal next to us is rising. We're looking at the Potomac, which is starting, you know, to look like the Colorado river during whitewater rapids, you know, and just feeling like, what, what are we doing? What's going on? And uh, we got to a point uh, where we we just didn't know, should we go forward? Should we go back? And a, a guy in a pickup came by and rescued us. And yeah. he said there were flash floods everywhere. It had been raining for the entire month. I mean, this was like a biblical rain. And um, they had closed the bike path by the end of the day. The waters didn't recede for weeks, literally. Um, and then you were how far into your cancer? Um, yeah, I was, I was still on tamoxifen, but I was, yeah. So, so that was the other thing for me was it was really sapping my ability to keep going physically and, uh, which was hard. Um, and, uh, it, it, the trip became for me, such the feeling of my cancer, because I, I knew in a way we weren't, you know, we weren't really at risk, really, because civilization was all around us. But at the same time, we were at risk. And um, it was scary and sad and, and, uh, and all those things. And the chapter is called turtles, because we ran into these turtle researchers during the trip. And, and I just, I learned more about turtles in Maryland. We saw turtles while we were biking and part of why they have such rich vegetation in that part of Maryland, we were trying to get to Harper's Ferry from Cumberland is because they have floods and it's just a great place for turtles. Hmm. But I found out turtles have all these ways of keeping themselves safe, including one kind that in the winter months basically goes dormant, but it's doing all this anaerobic res and a respiration without oxygen, which can be very toxic, but there's minerals in the turtle shell that keep it safe. Amazing, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the chapter ends with my wish that I wanna be a turtle. I wanna have a shell that keeps me safe. Yeah, let me just read this. It said, we, we, we put the bikes on the car rack, loaded up the rest of our gear, some of which was still soaking wet and covered in mud and drove home. I felt impossibly tired. Our vacation had imploded. If only I could have ridden out the storm or my cancer by drawing into a shell or nestling in the mud while my body's chemical magic kept me safe. So I, I guess I, I was expecting 
and you actually speak to this, this idea of, I gave it a try, I persevered, I, <laughs> and you weren't doing that. And in fact, you talk in the book about, and so I'm thinking, it's the journey, but you speak to the fact that don't talk to me about cancer being the journey. So, yeah. Yeah, that is, that is a hard one for me. And a lot of people talk about my cancer journey. And the image I always get when people say that is I'm in a plane seat and next to me is my tumor. Mm-hmm. And I'm like saying, Hey, is your seatbelt on? You know, like, like nobody wants to go on a journey with cancer. Um, and, and this language we don't put on any other disease, right? Mm-hmm. What's your journey with ALS? How, how's your dad's journey with Alzheimer's going? Um, and, and that is probably a reaction to the old idea that cancer used to mean death and still, still can, but as Diana said at the start, very often doesn't these days. Um, I just found all of that very hard. Cancer is a journey. The idea, oh, my cancer was a gift. Yes. Nope. 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 <laughs> nope. 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 You know, I, I, I learned things from this disease. I am grateful for that, I guess, but it, there's nothing I learned that can balance out the incredible fear I had that the time from my life Mm -hmm. I lost. No, I was diagnosed right when my twin daughters, our youngest kids had started as freshmen at university of Pittsburgh. I was thinking, what do I want to do now? Do I want to do more clinical work? Do I want to write more? You know, do I want to talk to my friend, Diana Mason about more advocacy, you know, and instead I became a breast cancer patient Mm. Um, you know, that's not the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone, but for that's me, that's not how you want to be defined. Right. And it's, it's a loss, right. A loss of that yeah. moment of expansion. Um, yeah. And you know what it put my kids through my husband, it's, none of that is a gift. None of it. It's no, none of it. Uh, well, I, I, it's it's a remarkable book and your insights I, I think part of the reason why you don't want to see it as a journey is because you're an insightful person you reflect a lot about yourself and that's part of what you do when you write and you can see that in your writing I think for other people who may not be as reflective cancer gives them that option that opportunity to be more reflective and when they grow they feel like it's been a journey i've it's a gift i've grown but for someone who already is self-reflective um i think it's uh it's maybe a different kind of experience so i i want to thank you Teresa brown for coming on twice on the health center in the catskills and talking with us about your book called healing when the nurse is a patient and uh, it's, it's really a very, very well-written, very interesting read. Uh, and I encourage our listeners to get a copy of it and to read it. And I want to thank you for sharing your experiences with us. There's, there's a lot of insight there, Teresa. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of Health Cetera in the Catskills. For more podcasts and discussions of important health issues and policies affecting health, go to Health Cetera's website and blog at www.healthmediapolicy.com. That's www.healthmediapolicy.com. This podcast was produced by Dr. Diana Mason and production assistant Kai Volsey.